Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. It was the best of time. It was the worst. She was the people's princess. To fight on the beaches. Oh, hey, man. These are the things that made England. To fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and evil woman. These are the things that made England. And the King of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the history that made England. Why are you blowing kisses at me? Uh... Right, I forgot that you're you're on camera. That I'm on camera. <laughs> I I actually had somebody on uh, face FaceTime on my phone, <laughs> <laughs> and they were just saying goodbye. We made not the history, the things that made England, uh, with myself, David Crowther, and Royfield Brown somewhere else, blowing kisses at his telephone. Um, this is a program where we talk about things that we think have made a contribution to the country that we both loved um, and today i am in the hot seat and i will propose something to you roy field mm-hmm, david uh you know j- just just before you you launch into this and i don't want to bring politics massively into what we do because this is somewhat apolitical what we do and i do love england but england is trying its best to make me not love it at the moment that's all i'm gonna say on with your topic sir Okay, excellent. So, um, uh, before we do, actually, I, I have an apology to make. Last week, we talked about... I think you mean time. last time, sir. Sorry? I think you mean last time. Several months ago. We talked about the sun, didn't we? And the I think sun. I was very dog-in-the-mangery. Bit reluctant, mm-hmm. a little bit churlish, a little bit grumpy. Phrase was used over my dead body. <laughs> well yeah you were somewhat immature and yeah. i know that our politics um is kind of somewhat similar in, in terms of where it, where it sits on the political spectrum but i am forced to admit 
with the benefit of 40, 50 years of hindsight. That's how long that newspaper has been uh, a staple part of the English media scene. But it has been um, a defining part of the last 50 years of English history. It just has. Whether you agree their politics or not, you have to give them that. Okay, so now we're going to move on to something which is even worse as far as you're concerned, because we're moving on to that horrible green stuff that lies between the places you like to be. We're going to talk about the countryside, Royfield. We're going to talk about the countryside. Yes, thinking about this, David, and I won't shoot my bolt right at the start, but there are a couple of reasons why the English countryside doesn't have the same resonance for me as it has for you. But however, on with your spiel, I'll try not to fall asleep. I can <laughs> I can imagine why it would have less relevance to you than me, but it'd be interesting to hear you say why. So, and I thought, look, to try and interest Royfield, I'm going to bang a whole load of things together under the title of The Great Outdoors, okay? Mm-hmm. Called, I think the word is cheating. So we're going to talk about Ordnance Survey. Oh, oh, see what you're doing. I see what you're doing, maps. There is almost nothing I love more than... Uh, with the exception of all my family and you, Royfield, obviously, than having an ordnance survey map in my hands. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to talk about footpaths and access, which you're probably going to be less excited about. And I'm going to talk about why I think the, the English love the great outdoors and the nature of the English countryside, by, by which stage you're going to be snoring, because that middle bit you're not going to like. But at the end, I'm then going to talk about reforming our land laws. Mm. I'm going to use the, the name George Monbiot. And I'm sure you love George, don't you? Yes. Uh, I, I love all of his works. His third album was his best. <laughs> <laughs> it's very underrated. <laughs> all right, then. So we're going to start with, um, you know, why is it important? And, um, you know, I could advance to you as many quotes as you like from way back that the English have always been proud of their countryside, of its fecundity. Uh, because mm-hmm. you know it, you all you have to do is go into the countryside. It's very green, and we've always been proud of that. But actually, the thing that we can do now of knowing exactly what is where is actually relatively recent. In days gone by, if you wanted to get somewhere, you ask somebody for the next place, and you went and did it in stages. Mm-hmm. So, I'm going to do a little bit of history of mapping. I suppose the first UK map or the first map, the oldest map in England, is what? Um... Isn't that going to be of England? Not, not England, in England. Huh. Well, Ptolemy did, did a map, but it's a, but the, that was before there was in England. So I don't know, sir. The map of Mundy at Hereford, which is oh. the map of the world. Okay. Famous, very lovely, but I wouldn't use it to go on a holiday with or take the dog for a walk. But Okay, so if that's the first map of England, no, it's when... Not the map of England, this is the first map the oldest map made in England, but it's actually the map of Monday. It's the map of the world. Okay. The Italians invent printing maps from copper plates in 1473. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then uh, a very famous uh, country that she's very famous for its map making takes over, which is uh, part of the world very famous for its map making. Uh, well, you are the first one. map corner, aren't you? Uh, yeah. Okay. So I'm going to say France. My God. Who are you? Who's stolen Royfield's body? Dear listener, I did say to David before we started, I've only had three hours worth of sleep last night. So (laughs) I'm not on my game. (laughs) 
I'll probably stop asking you questions there. We're talking about the low countries. So Belgium, uh, Belgium. Belgium. Yeah, that's sort of uh, Flanders, anyway. So they actually published a map of the British Isles in 1522. Hmm. And then after that, you get the most, probably the most famous cartographer, famous projection. Uh, Makata. Absolutely, that's the one, uh, whose actual name is apparently Gerhard Kramer, but he obviously looked at his name and thought, well, they're going to make a film about that, so I'm going to call myself Makata to get around that. (laughs) Funnily enough, that is the very first film I can ever remember going and seeing in the cinema uh, right. my mum and dad ah, there you and go. i never forget the very uh the last scene where every woman in that cinema is crying and Sorry. my dad is just laughing his head off <laughs> yeah it's a great film great film very 70s but a great film great i invited film. marianne to that the first girl i invited out mm-hmm. didn't go well she said no i'm she was washing her hair took me a few times to realize the fact Anyway, <laughs> didn't want to go out with me. Anyway, so he published his map of the British Isles in 1595. Mm-hmm. Um, the first map in England, copper plate map of London, which was surveyed between 1553 and 59, and it's a thing of beauty. If you go on the website, you can see the Argo map of London, mm-hmm. interactive map. You can drill down to street level. It's amazing. So you can mm-hmm. see a real map of Tudor, Tudor London. Mm. But the really exciting thing is John Speed, who created the History of Great Britain in Maps, published in 1611. And that is available on K- on the Cambridge Digital Library, absolutely free. And they are things of beauty. I'm telling you, go and check it out. Your foreplay is very long and detailed this week because well, you know that the actual topic I care for, not a jot. But you're approaching it from all the topics that I do love. A bit of history, maps, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Okay. Uh what has this got to do with the countryside per se? Because we've always wanted to know about it. We love it. We want to map it. We want to see it. Um, and that has led us to uh, producing a tool in the Ordnance Survey maps, mm-hmm. which everybody loves who loves the countryside. You cannot go anywhere without people in the countryside walking, whatever they're doing, using Ordnance Survey map. And those, those maps have opened up the English countryside for everybody and anybody. Mm. So, I mean, they, they are just things of, of beauty. We were the first country that carried out a detailed survey, driven actually by, unfortunately, the weak point in my argument, this is very much driven originally by events in Scotland. So the... Ah, was it the second Jacobin Rebellion? Then? That's the one. So after oh, okay. the second attempt of the Scots to impose a foreign ruler on the English... Uh, the British Army then said, right, we need to know about this. And a Scot, Lieutenant Colonel David Watson, said, right, well, let's compile a map of the Highlands to understand exactly who is where. So he did this whole mapping exercise in the Highlands. And that was kind of the genesis of the idea that we could map the entire country in great detail. In true British fashion, we started in Highland, um, and the 1841 Survey Act gave... Ordnance Survey, the legal right to enter any land for the purpose of mapping. So Mm -hmm. the first map completed was in Ireland, 1846, caused great controversy because, again, in true British fashion, we just imposed anglicised names on the Irish maps, which is when you realise just how important names are uh, to identity. So 
a fantastic tool created, but done in a very insensitive way, which, of course, is the history of uh, the English and the British in Ireland. 1870, I think, was the um, one-inch-to-one-mile maps of Great Britain. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1935, if you go to the... What was the last mountain you climbed to the top of in England? Or oh, Hed- David, come on. What was the last one? David, I've never been on top of a mountain in England. Well, we don't have any mountains in England, really, but on top of a tall hill. Dales? Uh, okay, no, no. I'm going to say the Licky Hills just outside of Brum. Right. Do they have hills outside of Brum? Mm-hmm. Birmingham's pro- actually quite a hilly city. Is it? All right. Yeah, it's one of the highest elevations, actually, within England. I invited you back to the shed once, didn't I? And mm-hmm. you didn't come because you said it's in the countryside. So let's meet in Notting Hill. You've got to come here and I'll take you to the top of a hill, all right? You'll love it. It's great up there. You can see lots. Anyway. Mm. Okay, so I'm I'm wandering around. What I'm saying is, uh, so essentially, there was this fantastic project. There was a quote by a chap called John O'Keefe, actually, who was uh, uh, an American who won the 2014 Nobel Prize for Medicine. Mm-hmm. And he came and he said he was attracted to two aspects of British culture. Um, those two aspects were? The countryside and... Um, give us a clue. Uh, where would you go if you fell over and break your foot? Oh, the NHS. The NHS. The NHS and Ordnance Survey maps, actually, is what he was said. So I love them because they're beautiful. They're very easily available, have been since 1870, give us access to the countryside. And they're really quirky. They're lovely things. So you can see all the fields are marked if they have bracken on them. Mm-hmm. But the biggest thing, of course, is they give us access to footpaths. Footpaths, as I'm sure you'll agree, are a national treasure. Mm-hmm. If you walk on the Ickneald Way, which is not far from me, um, Royfield, you are oh. walking along a pathway which has been walked on since Neolithic times. Huh. I thought the Ickneald Way was the Romans, but the Romans just went over yeah. the pre-existing oh, road. Didn't know that. Okay. So does it not excite you that as you walk down the Ickneald Way, you are walking in the footsteps of hundreds of generations? Mm. Excitement isn't the word I'd use. I'd be, I'd be mildly, mildly interested by the fact, but I wouldn't be excited by it, though, David. Okay, we're talking about Jane Austen, then. You're mildly diverted, yeah? There you go. Okay. There you go. You know, as far as I'm concerned, there are few greater thrills than walking through the <laughs> and seeing all those other generations, the marks that they have left. Because, you know, we know very little about the ordinary people of mm, 200 years ago, even, 300 years ago, certainly not. Once we went to 500, it's only the great and the good who are visible to us, except through the countryside. The marks they left, the field systems, the way they farmed it, the way they walked, the trade that they did, that is the only real link we have with them. That's not true. So you're telling me that if I go to uh, the city of London Mm -hmm. and I walk up Cheapside, I can't discern... uh, a medieval road pattern, and or what industries uh, were done in certain bits of uh, the City of London. Of course I can. Exactly the point I'm making. You have just agreed with me. The marks they leave on the countryside, and indeed, absolutely right, in in urban situations, Mm -hmm. those are the marks we have of the ordinary people. Oh, I thought you said you can only see this in the countryside. Uh, well, sorry, I meant the marks that people leave. Because I, I must admit, I find urban walking every bit as exciting as the countryside, actually, I must admit. Oh, 
now we're on the same page, sir. Yeah. Okay. Oh, walking to the country. If you were to go to Southwark, for example, mm-hmm. it's an absolute triumph. So, totally agree that. But my point is that the countryside, most of life until the last, what, 200 years or so, has been rural life. You know, 90% of the population was rural in the mm-hmm. countryside. That's where you see uh, where life was lived. But the 10% that were interesting were in the cities. <laughs> Fact. The older. Fact. Excellent. So, basic divisions of the English countryside. Planned and unplanned. Troubles, you're not going to be excited by this because you've no interest in the countryside. But if you were to think, right, I'm going to try and attract people to come and see this country, what mm. image should I put on my advertising material? Would you not put things like maybe a beautiful Cotswold village? Mm. It has to be said that the first time when I really realized as a properly fully formed adult, how beautiful the countryside was was when I was with a foreigner. Uh-huh. I had this German, uh, sorry, an Italian girlfriend at the time, and we went to a wedding just outside of Hereford. And we got to this village, and she literally screamed with delight, and she said, "This is the England I've always had pictured in my mind." It's true. That's where it is. That's one of its centres. That's where it lies. So I would argue that the English village is, you know, a thing of unusual beauty i mean i'm not saying there aren't other incredibly beautiful things like you know if you go to a an italian hilltop town fantastic so i'm not being exclusive but an english village is a thing of beauty less now in a way because of course now they're rather set in aspic you know the people who live in those villages very often now are the people who can afford to do so but nonetheless Mm. villages were actually formed around about somewhere between the 9th and the 14th century in a particular part of, of England. So in lowland England, you can divide into two, into planned countryside and unplanned. In the planned mm. countryside, people consciously got together and formed open field systems, farmed in common, and they formed villages because that was the most effective way uh, to share your plough teams, share your resources, meet and discuss what you were going to plant every year, how you were going to harvest um, what lands you're going to have in common, how many fields you're going to leave fallow, all that sort of stuff. So that process in half of England, let's say, for sake of argument, so that's the Midlands, Norfolk, Dorset, flat Yorkshire, flat champion land, they called it. Mm. The other half, Essex, Kent, hilly stuff, Chilterns, North, West or Upland England, They never did that. And so if you go around, you'll see a completely different structure. Small hamlets, dispersed settlements, not the same nucleated uh, settlements, nucleated villages. And you'll see lots of footpaths all over the place rather than relatively few, as you'll see in planned countryside. I'm going to stop there because I can see your eyes are glazing over. But there are these two fundamental differences in the way the English countryside uh, is laid out which I think is absolutely fascinating. But I've talked about it on two History of England podcasts recently, and everybody wants me to stop talking about it now, including you. So, David, as as you know, this is not a topic I know anything about at all. How does the English countryside differ from the countryside of the Low Countries, let's say, or, or northern France? Right, so I think that's the interesting thing. So that you get both things, I think, in the sense that you get connections and similarity and mm-hmm. get difference because of the specific lo- localities so 
all countries around all areas around Europe for most of our history has been very regional. So if you said my country is, you would be talking about my country is Warwickshire, my country is the black country, my country is the southwest. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't be just talking about England. And the same applies, especially in France, which is very particularist, Germany even more. So there's all that local stuff that goes on. So the Fenland has got its own specific characteristics, shared a lot with the low countries, because, of course, a lot of low country engineers came and built uh, Fenland in England, came and drained it and provided the expertise. But the processes that go across, across England and Europe are very similar. So around about the same times, 9th to the 14th century, you get a process of senioralization, whereby lordship intensifies, the rights of peasants get slowly nibbled away, and their economic status gets nibbled away, and you get the introduction and intensification of serfdom. And that, to the, let's say the 14th century, is a pretty constant pattern over Europe. And that forms similar structures in the countryside, open field farming, for example. Then you get a bit of divergence. But what I'm saying is there are similarities and differences. Okay. Which is a rubbish answer, isn't it? But, you know, Mm. that's the lovely thing about landscape is that, and why I love living where I do, is that landscape moulds people and what they do, and people mould landscape. Mm. Um, I think you probably know the reason why I don't have the connection with the countryside that you do. And to me, it goes to the heart of ownership, custodianship of the country. Fundamentally, two reasons. I don't claim to be working class now, um, but I definitely grew up in a very working class household. And having a hike, going into the countryside, going to see a stately home, all those things which we associate with the countryside, if you are an urban dweller, Mm. we we just didn't do. That's what other people did. It's what the posher people did right and and it's it's things like camping camping isn't exclusively a a middle class pursuit but it's something which the middle class uh grab by the by the knackers and 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 run with you know camping hiking just the very love and appreciation of the countryside It's, it's this one aspect where the class divide still has some kind of resonance so it's just not instinctively within my uh will purview understanding want whatever the adjective is to go into the countryside to go walking to appreciate it in that way don't get me wrong um i like to go and invariably it's something which i've always done with somebody else Uh, let's be quite honest about it with a woman and she'll say, let's have a drive out into the countryside and find a little village and have a pub lunch or an afternoon tea. Yeah. And it's a lovely thing to do. But what we don't do is go and stop off at one village, put on a pair of boots and then go walking for five miles. Then just to have a, a, a pint of ale, they have to come all the way walking back and then jump in the car. It, it's very, it's very different. So there is this class thing. And then I come... I'll argue about the class thing. I presume we'll go to the second point then. I'll argue a little bit. Okay, go on. I kind of agree that um, there's probably a higher percentage of the middle class probably enthusiastic about walking the countryside and camping than working class. But there's plenty of working class um, history around 
access to the countryside. So, you know, I will talk to you about the Kinder Scout mass trespass in 1932, for example, where the British Workers' Sports Federation formed uh, as a mass trespass of Kinder Scout, which is a um, a highest point of the Peak District, mm-hmm. walked up this, the hillside, were faced off by the Duke of Devonshire's gamekeepers. Um, and through that, um, there was a, then a, an access rally of about 10,000 people which gathered, and that led probably to the National Parks legislation. Um, I, I don't doubt that there haven't been great um, incidents of the, the lowly folk, the working class, the peasants, whatever you want to call them, the great unwashed, shaking their fists at, at great landowners. And it had some kind of, uh, whether it was a, a great or a, or a small effect on the history of, of the countryside. But whilst I'm not arguing against your premise that the English countryside is important, it's more important for a certain class of English person, of which sees it as a badge of honour that they are custodians of and that they own it. So the right, the right of way to be able to walk uh, down uh, some unbridled path and stuff. There is a certain type of English person that sees that as a great right and they are aggressive in pursuing that right and to walk through somebody's field because they have this right away etc etc i'm not arguing against it at all Hmm. but i am nowhere near that type of person and i wasn't brought up around those types of people and i think at the very heart of this is a sense of cultural ownership and where and and my sense of cultural ownership of the artifice of what makes england fundamentally is urban because not only did I grow up very much working class, but also I, I grew up in an immigrant family. And what my parents could attach onto very quickly was how Birmingham worked. And they still held on to their West Indian heritage. But we'd always travel between Birmingham and London, London, Birmingham for family holidays and stuff. So the countryside was something which I saw either side of the motorway. Yeah. We, at age five, we weren't walking around these wonderful, beautiful English villages. And I'm not unique in this. Many a uh, working class city person just slightly shrugs their shoulders and says, yeah, 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 yeah. it's, it's kind of great and all. And as I said, it was rammed home to me going to a wedding in Hereford, just by the Welsh borders. And my partner who I went with literally screamed. And I went, and, and that's when the shutters from my eyes fell down and I could actually, or opened up, whatever, whatever the metaphor is, and I could actually see this for what it was. And it was inherently beautiful, but I don't have such a connection with it. It's not the England that I grew up understanding inherently. Yeah, I mean, I think, I obviously, take your point, and I think that's more and more the case. Actually, I don't think the countryside is intrinsically middle class rather than working class because actually if you look at all the study and history and the people take interest in it it's very much about saying look here is where we can connect with people that we can identify rather than all these constant histories of you know Mm -hmm. this and the lord of that and what what else but i do accept that more and more there are more and more of us are born in a countryside, sorry, born in a town, live in a town, and don't have any connection with the countryside. There was a report recently that says some horrible percentage of people live more than 10 
minutes walk away from any green space at all. Mm. Uh, and I think that's very dangerous. I think it's very dangerous for the broader sense of place with England as a country rather than with your locality. And I think it's really important for people's mental health. Because I tell you, there is little more relaxing, even if you're getting bored as hell, than sitting for an hour where you haven't got lots of inputs coming on you. Mm. Uh, Listen, I I couldn't agree more. I I couldn't agree more. And though this is not a topic which I would even have thought to propose, I do begrudgingly say, well, it needs to go in for no other reason than one of the points which you said before is that it is iconic in terms of um, an image of England. You know, and I and I just repeat, as somebody who spends now the vast majority of my time outside of England, when I speak to people about England, invariably you get the cricket and cups of tea and all this kind of stuff. But the countryside is there and I want to go to a little English village. Oh, that would be so so wonderful is what, what people say. So so it is. But here's a test. Do you have an English heritage membership? I do. There you go. Rest my case. <laughs> you don't. Well, uh, so I'm going to say one more thing, and then we can we can leave this and move on to something more interesting. Which I'll... just just before, just before we leave it, you should maybe explain what English heritage is. Oh, yeah, go on then. It's you're absolutely right. And indeed, national trust is probably the other. Oh, I actually meant national trust, but I said English heritage. But yeah, a uh, yeah, slightly different organisations. So yes, national trust set up um, to take to have responsibility and custodianship for all those artefacts, you know, built environment artefacts and indeed land uh, that we see as uh, special and different. Not everything, of course, because you have areas of outstanding natural beauty, like the area I live in, in fact, and you have national parks, which, of course, is different from the National Trust. And English Heritage takes custodianship of a whole load of other landmarks. Why am I not thinking of the right word, Royfield? monuments historical monuments Mm. so i think as a as a country we spent we we put quite highly the preservation of our heritage many would say we don't put it highly enough but i think it's quite important in the uk isn't it we give it quite a high priority no no no, we do and as i said and i don't mean i'm not saying this to belittle you or people that see it as important there is a certain type of person of which this is vitally important and i'm not saying that it's not but there is a type of again bearded ale drinker <laughs> you know david um, there's a as uh, an academic lauren i can't remember her second name anyway who's just published a book on henry the sixth and she's been doing some talks and she was doing a, court, a talk in leicester i think yesterday so i saw this picture and there's a lovely old uh you know, wooden framed building she's doing the talk in and all the people who are listening to her are me. (laughs) (laughs) Either me, the male version, or me, the female version, you know. My heart sank a little bit that I realised I had become a parody of myself. But anyway, there you go. That comes to the door. I'm going to die, what the hell. The last thing I would say, I think there is a radical side of all of this. It's a bit of a stretch to take the countryside and link it to land as a concept but i think it's an important thing is you're right that there is a thing about land in england which is about the people who own it Mm. Uh, and for all the changes in our society too much land is still owned by too 
smaller number of people. And access to land is still too hard. You know, we've got a very good system of footpaths. Farmers are obliged by statute to maintain them and maintain access to them. And that's great. But, uh, you know, we've got house prices in the UK are horrendous. You know, I don't know about you, but I mean, I have three children, none of whom could even contemplate doing what I did and buying a house. So, you know, I think we, we're in a very important stage where we need to make some radical decisions about how uh, we manage our land and what ownership is like. Mm. Mm. Well, this has been a fun episode. <laughs> You're bored, aren't you? Anyway, so <laughs> iconic and you should go on, on uh, chocolate boxes and you're going to ignore my call to arms as per George Monbiot's Land for the Many charter, which I urge you to go and look up. The thing is, David, my time for manning the barricades for various causes is, uh, isn't is infinite. And I have many more causes that I feel much more passionately about. However, it's not that I, I have no feeling for this cause at all. And what I do absolutely have feeling for is second home ownership in the countryside, which is driving out young people, people on lower incomes, driving them away from the countryside and actually killing true economic vitality of villages because they can't support a local shop they can't support a pub they can't support a post office because a significant proportion of the homes there are only at best weekend homes if only just occasional homes sometime during the summer so the housing stock is going down and those people do not want any new development because it's going to ruin their views etc etc so it just exacerbates the problem of English property prices being just about higher than everywhere else in Europe and stuff. So, yeah, so I, that is a cause. I, I, that is a barricade I can get behind and, uh, and, and to fight the man. However, uh, the countryside per se, there are people who feel more passionately about it than me uh, that will fight that fight. And I will give them every right to fight that fight on my behalf. Right. Very good. So I think we can declare that a wrap. Let's hear, shall we, the wrap-up from the episode about which I've already apologised, which is The Sun. I think I signed off my last roundup saying I was looking forward to hearing what controversial thing Royfield would choose to put in our cabinet this time. And he didn't disappoint. The sun. So, what are the scores on the doors? Well, it would appear that Royfield has had a shocker. Don't worry, I won't be doing this whole roundup in Cod Sunspeak. 47 people went for, no, it's not for me, and it has never had anything cogent to say. It is hateful and boorish while only 25 people voted for the classic, yes, it's the sun what won it, and four people admitted it was not their cultural weather vane. I think I agree with Fiona when she said that the wording of the poll was unfortunate. It just felt wrong to be voting in favour of the sun for so many of us. Betty Lou, Sarah and Marilyn got stuck in early with a great exchange about Rupert Murdoch, Fox News and the sun. I don't think any of them would be amongst our 25 sun worshippers, but I do think that Marilyn at least voted for it to go in the cabinet. If you haven't already, 
get over to the Facebook group to see their thread. It's a great read. Then the debate opened up along the lines neatly summarised by Lawrence, who said that this is the things that made England not the things that made England great. A bunch of people like Stuart, Wayne and even Ian, who is a scouser, recognised the impact the rag has had on England. It was Stephen who came out with a resounding no, just no. The Sun is not the cheeky upstart it purports to be. It is part of the right-wing project that has taken over this country. Royfield could see where this was all going and opened up another thread and challenged what he called the intellectual and political snobbery on the forum and asked us to accept that some pretty ugly things have contributed to making England what she is. The example he used was slavery, something that has undoubtedly made England. Lisa, I thought, nailed it by saying that slavery was only one part of a general attitude that fostered colonialism, something that really has made England. As Jennifer said, Royfield certainly knows how to start a conversation. Guy wraps it all up neatly with his stats, which I think are pretty pertinent. According to Guy, the Sun's sales figures must be far outstripped by its actual readership. Each copy of a paper like this is read by an average of two people, which translates as 25% of the voting population. And surely anything with that sort of reach must contribute to the making of England. But if stats and debates about some of the finer points of language are not your thing, our Facebook group has something for everyone. There's Rowena's How to Cut Toast post. Toast post, for example. Or you could also find Lonnie's Breakfast. Lonnie is blessed with the same good fortune as my wife in having a Scottish husband. As most of you will know, David needs to take a bit of a break from podcasting for health reasons. We are lucky that there are a couple of episodes already recorded that Royfield will be releasing. We have been discussing ideas for keeping the good ship TTME on the road, and as you can tell from that mixed metaphor, I will be a poor stand-in for David. So we were thinking of ways to get you, the listeners, involved. We have ample proof from our Facebook discussions that people are not short of opinions on what does and does not constitute a thing that made England. So here's your chance to make your voices heard. I will open up a thread on the Facebook page and ask for input on ideas. And before anyone says, Oh, I'm from Alabama, Alberta, Auckland, or even Azerbaijan. I don't know why I'm doing Azerbaijan in an Alabama accent. I don't think that was even an Alabama accent. How could I possibly have an opinion on what things make England? Well, I think it is really interesting to hear what people from other countries think make England. In fact... I would be fascinated to hear an Azerbaijani view on England. Anyone out there? Before I sign off, I would like to send David a massive get well soon from all of us. I do hope that you are being pampered with your feet up and getting the chance to listen to some podcasts, including this one, of course. Very good. Perfect. Right, everybody get in touch. Go onto the Facebook site, tell us what you think about the English countryside, how it is important, how important it is or not, as you may think. Um, and we will then see you next time to talk about Royfield's topic, which is going to be the archers.
Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye from me and... Toodlepip from me. Well done, sir. Very good. That was very uh, cordial and, uh, and, and very nice. Excellent. Well done. Well done. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.